All right, Providence, good morning. Um, man, I, I tell you what, sometimes this stuff, you feel like you got things together, and sometimes you just feel like you're chasing your tail just a little bit. And uh, I don't know, maybe I feel like that more these days because uh, I'm not even sure where my tail is at this point, and I'm chasing it anyway. So maybe you guys feel that way. That's the way I feel uh, this morning. Um, but I, I'm glad to be here with you, and I'm glad to be able to open God's Word and to be able to study uh, together. Uh, happy Mother's Day again to you moms out there. Uh, on behalf of all kids and, uh, and, and husbands everywhere, let me just say um, we've had some challenges this year, so be gracious if you don't have a gift like waiting on you this morning. I'm sure it's coming from Amazon at some point. Um, but uh, be kind. We've had some challenges. So uh, there you go, guys. I threw you a bone. Do something with it. Um, anyway, this morning we're going to be looking at a, a few different events again in the life of David. We're, we're sticking in the life of David, and uh, we've been in this series, uh, Curveball, now for several weeks. Uh, what, what do you do when life takes an unexpected turn? Sometimes life doesn't go quite how you how you expected. And we began asking this question, how much easier would life be if we just knew what was coming? How much easier would it be if we just knew what was ahead of us? And we've seen that sometimes perhaps we probably should have seen it coming and we just, we just weren't paying attention or we, we didn't have our eyes open to be able to see uh, the right thing. And, and other, uh, other times we just have no way of knowing what is about to hit us. And I wonder how many of you guys, and maybe this is just me, so just do this mental exercise with me, or maybe this is you too, but I wonder how many of you go back in your minds to March the 1st this year. I've done this a lot. You just go back a couple of months and think about what you think you knew at that point. What was about to happen. What was going, what your next few weeks and months were going to look like. Go back to that day and think about the sum total of your ignorance of what was about to happen. I think about that uh, a lot. And sometimes it's really stressful and sometimes it's actually uh, not so bad. And, and in my life, some things have barely changed and in, uh, obviously in, in other ways things have uh, completely uh, changed. And it just continues to weigh on me, my complete and total ignorance of what I, uh, the, the complete and total ignorance that I had of what was about to hit us, of what was just coming down the pike. And I couldn't see it. I, I didn't have the capability uh, to see it. And I wonder how many of you in your mind may go back to March 1st uh, of this year and think uh, the same thing. It's an interesting exercise to consider how differently I viewed things just a few months ago. And I, I realize some of you guys may be thinking, well, honestly, not a whole lot has to have changed. Really, you, you don't have to have changed the way you view things uh, a whole lot from the last month or two. And I understand that sentiment, and in some ways I get it. Really, there's a lot that's going to that's gonna be the same. But in, in other ways, um, I think we've all been shaped by this. There's, there's almost no way um, that we've not been shaped in some uh, ways and my my total ignorance just continues to to roll over me and as someone who wants to constantly know more that's kind of how I'm I'm wired I like to to take in all kinds of information from dis different sources kind of pick and choose from it assess my best option and figure out how to move 
forward, but I like to do it with the most amount of information possible, right? If I'm going to buy a, a, a computer, if I'm going to buy a, a TV, I'm going to research and know everything I can about that market in that moment, and then I'm going to pick the best TV that makes the most sense for me. That's kind of the way uh, that I work. There's none of this, like, I'm going to go in there, that one looks good, I'll take that one. That's not how that works for me. I like to know more. I like to have this so that I can prepare for the, the most likely situations and And it can really bother me whenever I get blindsided by something, whenever I just miss something, either because I have a blind spot and it's a flaw in me, or just because that's the way things go sometimes, and you can't see everything that's coming. But but it can really bother me when I don't see things uh, coming, and and I can't be as prepared and as proactive as I uh, want to be, but... So that, that, can, that can bother me. And I've learned a lot of lessons just in the last few weeks about how I could have been better prepared in certain ways and how maybe I could have seen some parts of this coming, if not all of it, certainly not, but, but some parts of it. Maybe we could have been, uh, you know, just me personally, uh, my family, or maybe even here at Providence, we could have been better prepared in certain ways. And, and we want to, to learn from that. Um, but I'll tell you something else that I've learned that's really helpful for me is that my ignorance of what was about to hit us is not an ignorance that was, that was a sin. It, it, It wasn't wrong for me to not know what I didn't know, if that makes sense. It wasn't wrong for me not to know it. My ignorance has, uh, in fact, grown to be something of a comfort for me uh, in the last few weeks. Now, maybe that doesn't make sense in light of what I just said. Whenever I realize that I'm ignorant about something, it tends to be uh, cause some anxiety in me. It causes a, a curiosity that makes me want to go and know more. But the flip side of that is, part of what I've learned is that my ignorance is actually a comfort factor. What I don't know uh, is actually helpful. As we have uh, talked as elders trying to figure out what next looks like for us and what the, the, the next phase and the next step and, and the next whatever looks like for, for, for me personally, for my family, as I've thought through uh, all of those things, um, what I have really come very comfortable uh, with is, is the answer that I don't know what next is. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen a month from now. I, 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 didn't, know, I didn't know on March the, the 1st. I don't know uh, now what's, what, 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 what July the 1st is going to look like. I just don't know. And that can be a comfort for me. You see, see my ignorance is a trait uh, that is not something that I share with God. You see, my ignorance is, is rooted in my limitations. It is not something that is, uh, that is something I, I share with God. God is not ignorant as to what is going to happen. He knew on March 1st that we wouldn't have an Easter service uh, in this building. He wasn't surprised. I was. He wasn't. He knows what church will look like on August the 1st. I don't. I'm not sure. And I am remarkably comforted in that. That he knows even when I don't. And it's in that difference between who I am, specifically in my limitations of who I am as a, as a, created, uh, a created human being, it's that difference between who I am and what he is that I have learned 
to find the most mystery, the most awe, a lot of times the most confusion, and honestly, so often the most joy. In that space between my limitations and his lack of those, in that space between who I am, limited, and who he is, unlimited, in that space between the two, I find confusion, and I can also find joy. And today we're going to look at one of those moments that really starts with that utter confusion. That moment when you realize, what is going on here? This doesn't make any sense based on what I thought I knew. It starts with confusion, shock, grief, anger, but it will turn and it will lead to, to what could be called undignified joy. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as you turn, I'll try to quickly set the scene here. Uh, I'm already a little behind from where I want to be in, in, in my notes here. But I'll try to quickly uh, set the scene as, as best I can. There's so much going on here. I'm not going to be able to fully communicate everything in this passage. But the context is that David has been made king over all of Israel. For seven years, he had been king of Judah, the southern uh, kingdom uh, of Israel. Uh, and he had uh, lived in Hebron, the, the, the southern capital there, and he had ruled from there. Uh, and then in, in chapter 5, just one chapter uh, ahead of where we're going to start here, uh, one chapter 5, he, he shows one of the primary reasons why David became known as one of the, if not the greatest king in the history of Israel. He unites the, the, the two tribes. He unites the two kingdoms, the, the northern and the southern kingdom under the, the banner of Israel. Judah and Israel come together. They are solidified. They are united as one kingdom under David. He moves the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. And once he's in Jerusalem, he begins to make it the political capital. You can understand if you're, you're moving the capital city of a, of a nation, there's going to be all kinds of political things that are going to need going to going to need to be done. But his focus is not first on the political movements, or at least not primarily on the political movements, because he doesn't just want it to be the political capital of Israel. He wants it to be the religious capital of Israel. He wants the people of Israel to look to Jerusalem whenever they think of God and whenever they think of uh, what it means to, to follow him and be under one banner. And so he, he moves this capital city, and once he's in Jerusalem, uh, he begins to make uh, these changes. And he decides that it's time for the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. You know that thing that we looked at back in Exodus when we were in the book of Exodus, all the details that we got about that, uh, that that Ark, which has been lost, which has been in the hands of, of Israel's enemies, and then has been just kind of tucked away in some random city, that Ark needs to come to the capital. It needs to be in Jerusalem. That, that ark is the symbol of the presence of God, the physical symbol of the spiritual presence of God among his people, and at times, the physical presence of God among his people. That's what that ark stood for. And David says that ark doesn't belong in some random city just sitting there wasting away. It belongs in Jerusalem. It belongs in the capital city of God's people. And this is a big move for the nation. This is a, 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 a kind of 
paradigm-shifting move for the people of Israel if this were to, were to happen. He'd been at this city, Baal, Judah, for, uh, ever since the Philistines had tried to get, uh, get rid of it. Um, I, I think it's interesting. The Philistines had, had captured it, but as soon as they captured it, they realized that they had a problem on their hands. They captured it, but they didn't want to keep it. Uh, you, you can go back and read the story in 1 Samuel chapter 6. It is, uh, it is great. They captured the ark. They stored it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And after one night, the Philistines came back into the temple uh, to find their god laying face down in the temple. Nobody knew how it had happened. It was this big, massive stone. It shouldn't have been able to be moved at all. But their god was laying face down in the temple. And so the ark was in there as though it were, it were a conquered thing, as though God himself had been conquered by their gods, but it had been knocked over the, the, the next day. And then uh, they, they, they stand it back up. The next night they come in there to check out uh, the, the temple. And that God has now, uh, that, that stone statue, little God, G-O-D, uh, has now been knocked over again. And his, his head and his hands have been chopped off. God is asserting his power. He would not be placed in some uh, pagan temple under some uh, God made by someone's hands and was uh, sending a not-so-subtle message that he was supreme over them. I think it's a, a great story. And so the Philistines decided this was going to be a problem and they shouldn't mess with this ark. And so uh, they stuck it on a cart, uh, smacked the, uh, the oxen in the rear and said, you get out of here with that thing. And it took off down the street. They didn't want it. So it shows up in another city. This other city has uh, rats and tumors that begin to break out and they decide they don't want it either. So they stick it on a cart. They send it off to a city called Beth Shemesh and it goes there and it's just kind of forgotten about. It's just kind of dismissed. They, Philistines get rid of it, and, and, and the, the Israelites are kind of like, okay, here's this thing. I don't know what to do with it. We're just going to leave it here. And it's forgotten until David becomes king and wants to set up Jerusalem as the religious capital for his people, and he wants to bring the ark home. So he goes to get it, and this is where our text picks up. David thinks he knows what's about to happen. He thinks he's about to do something great for God, and he thinks God is going to be so happy with him for what he's done. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were uh, with him from Baal Judah to bring up from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Now, what you're about to read in the next verse is where our curveball comes in. So if, if we stop there, now don't, don't cheat, don't read ahead, stop right there in, in, in verse 5. If you know the story of what happens next, um, then, then just suspend your uh, imagine, imagination, just, or suspend your, uh, your thoughts for a second. Just imagine, what do you think should come next? They go to get the ark, they've got music playing all around it, they come up to a hill, they're, they're on this new cart, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. There's music playing everywhere. It's a parade fitting a king. 
music, dancing, celebration, full-on party. And then we get to verse 6 and verse 7, and this comes out of nowhere. Verse 6, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now that's not something you see coming. It frankly doesn't make very much sense to us at all to read that. It stops you right in your tracks when you read that. D David was doing a good thing. It seems as though Uzzah was doing a good thing. It, it, it's something that when you read it, it makes you stop and wonder if, if, if maybe this story's been told wrong. Or, 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 or maybe, you know what, maybe God just got this one wrong. Because this just doesn't seem right that this should happen. I mean, if we read it correctly, this parade comes to an immediate and abrupt halt because the ark started to fall, and this guy named Uzzah reaches out to keep it from falling. That seems like something that is not only justified, but very, very necessary for Uzzah to do. And yet God strikes him dead on the spot. How can that be? Our God. Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek God. That same God strikes Uzzah dead right there. Honestly, it's texts like these that make people want to make excuses for our faith. It's texts like these that make people say, well, that's the Old Testament God. God isn't like that today. Never mind the fact that it says that God never changes. Or depending on the school you went to or the church you went to, they may say, well, that's just a story as a warning. It didn't really happen. It's just something they tell as kind of like a, a parable. You can uh, just ignore that part of the Bible because we just don't, we don't look at God the same way. Or they say that's a, that's a primitive faith. Ours has evolved past that now. Ours isn't like that now. We are more refined. We are more dignified. And that's a barbaric culture and a barbaric faith at that time. That's no longer what the Christian faith is. Christianity has evolved. But if we do that, we'd miss a huge lesson about who God is and about our faith we'd also inevitably come to a place where we would have to deny our faith. And I also think we'd miss out on the greatest joy of following Jesus if we were to dismiss this story as some fable or some parable. But for now, what we feel is the same thing that David felt. If you read the next verse, it says that David was angry with God. We're angry. David was angry for what God had done. How dare God do such a thing? What right does he have to do this to Uzzah? After all, David was doing something good for God. Uzzah was doing something that in his heart was a good thing. Why can't God just be happy with that? Why are the good intentions not enough? And David's anger is an understandable response. I don't want to pretend that it's anything else. It makes total sense for David to respond how he did. He feels like he's checked all the good guy boxes. He feels like he's done everything that he's supposed to do. 
God should have been happy with him and with the people of Israel. And that's why this is such a curveball right here. We're all so focused on what God thinks of us that we often forget to remember what God thinks of himself. We're so focused on ourselves and what God's opinion of us might be that we forget to take into account that his supreme, his supreme concern is not so much in what we are, but who he is. God isn't impressed by our efforts to get his attention. God isn't impressed by our efforts to prove how great we are. What God desires is not that we or that he be able to see our greatness, that, that we be able to see his. That's what God is concerned about in this moment. David's anger is a natural response. Our anger, our dismay, our frustration with God is a natural response. When life goes off the rails and things don't go as planned, those are natural, common responses. We shouldn't be afraid to express that that frustration and that anger towards God. It's called lament. It's a biblical category. We've talked about it several times over the last few weeks, but it's called lament, and it's biblical, and it's part of our faith. So long as we recognize that our anger isn't rooted in a character defect with God. We feel that anger. We recognize that frustration. We get confused and lost, but that's not because of something insufficient in God. It's because of something insufficient in us. We aren't angry because God failed. We aren't angry because, uh, because we're righteous and we have a, the ultimate sense of right and wrong and fair. That's not why we're angry. We're angry because we're ignorant. We're angry because we don't know the full picture, because we don't comprehend the, the gulf between us and God, which is exactly what's happened here. David and Uzzah get thrown a curveball because their hearts, not because their hearts were in the wrong place. That's not why they get the curveball, because they, their heart was in the wrong place. Their heart seems to have been in the right place, at least in general. But they get a curveball because they assumed that their way was as good as God's way. Here's what I'm talking about. So long as their way was sufficient, there was no reason that they needed to follow God's way. And from David's perspective, what he had done was sufficient. He had a band and a, and a, and a marching band to lead the parade. He had a brand new cart that shouldn't be uh, stumbling and shouldn't cause the ark to fall. David thought his way was sufficient. It was good enough. They did what they knew how to do. They had a royal parade. The problem is the way that God commanded for the ark to be transported wasn't by royal parade. He had laid out an entirely different prescription for how that was supposed to happen. You see, God had given very specific instructions. Back in Exodus, where we, where we looked before, in all those detailed passages, he had given very specific instructions for how the ark was to be uh, carried and, and transported, how it was to be moved. And what was supposed to happen is that, that uh, the, 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 
the ark was never supposed to be put on a cart, even a new, shiny, nice one. It was supposed to be put on poles that, that, that ran through these hoops on the side of it. And then it was supposed to be carried by the priests. And that way, there's no chance it was going to fall because of the way that it was going to be carried. Had they done that, Uzzah would not have died on that day. They did it wrong. They weren't following God's command and God's instruction. They thought their way was good enough and that God should have been happy with that. You say, well, that still seems a bit harsh to me. I mean, why would God strike him down for this? Their heart was at least in the right place, which would be fine if that were the only criteria that matters, but it's not. God calls us to obedience, both inward obedience and outward obedience. The two go hand in hand. It doesn't do me any good to to love my neighbor if I can't stand him in my heart. Nor does it do me any good to say that I love my neighbor if I'm not willing to sacrifice and care for him. You see, it sounds good to say, you know what? I love the people of Providence Church, but... But if you then say, but they need to get uh, around my idea of what I think is right. Or if you show up and and, and you say to uh, us and you, and, and, and you, you show up and you say, you know what, I'll serve, I'll do whatever. But in your heart, you're bitter and you're angry. Both of those are problems. Inward and outward obedience is what we are called to. This was Uzzah's problem. He misread the situation entirely. He acted in his ignorance of where his biggest problem was. What he knew is that the ark was massively important. What he knew is that the ark was the physical representation of the presence of God for the people of Israel. What he knew is that getting it back to Jerusalem was of utmost importance. And then when those oxen started to stumble, when that cart started to tilt, when the ark started to wobble, he made an assumption in that moment, one that would ultimately cost him his life. He assumed in that moment that the biggest problem he had was outside of himself. He assumed the biggest problem he had in that moment was the mud that the ark was about to plunge into. What he should have known is that his biggest problem was not the mud. It was his own sinfulness. The the mud bears no wrath from God. Sinful man does. The mud has not been separated from God. Sinful man has. And that's why Uzzah was killed. He misread the situation. He thought the mud was dirtier than he was. But he was wrong. These moments that come in our relationship with God are moments that we like to put in the vocabulary of saying that we are broken before God. These moments when we grasp our sinfulness when we feel the weight of our separation before God. 
If you're a Christian, you've had to come to some level of realization of this fact, that God is holy and that you are not, and you have a very big problem because of it. Like Uzzah, you too have dirty hands. And most of the world thinks that if we scrub hard enough, then God will say, you know what, that's good enough. Your heart's in the right place. I'll call it clean. But the problem isn't just the dirty hands. It's the sinful heart. Our biggest problem isn't, it, isn't outside of us. It's inside of us. Which is why we must plead for mercy and grace. And this is what sets the stage for the next part of this story. After David walks away angry, he puts the ark in a house for safekeeping, and he goes off to think. And then in verse 12, it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. He takes six steps. That's it. Six steps. And then he stops. He looks around. He's alive. Everybody else is still alive. He's been reminded of the holiness of God. He's been reminded of the sinfulness of his own heart. He's been reminded of his need for obedience. And he's been given another chance to get this right. And he takes six steps. And he looks around and he just starts to dance in unbridled joy. He, he sacrifices an animal as praise to God. It's a dance that is striking in its joy and its lack of reverence, not in reverence towards God, but in, in reverence for his position as king, in reverence for what he's supposed to be doing as a king. Think of it this way. Can you imagine the Queen of England just dancing down the street because she was fired up about something? That's undignified for the Queen of England. She's not going to do that. But that doesn't stop David. It might be undignified for him. It doesn't matter. He has a joy that cannot be contained. Because he knows what can happen if God isn't merciful to condescend to his people in this way. In an ark, on poles, being carried back to Jerusalem. God doesn't have to, to, to be present in that way, but he has chosen to. And David is now still alive six steps later to tell the tale. God has been merciful. But not everybody's happy with what's going on here. Look at the reaction of David's wife. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart. Look down to verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, 
came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So David gets this lecture from his wife, from Michael. It's unacceptable for a king to behave like this. He should be ashamed of himself for the way he has acted. And David's basic response to her is that if you think that's bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to go crazy. I am going to praise God completely uninhibited. There is nothing that's going to stop me. And let me tell you why. Because I just took six steps and I'm still here. And that shouldn't be. I shouldn't be here. But I know grace in a way I didn't know it just a few days ago. I was ignorant to my, my plight and to my problem, but now I know the grace of God. David is more aware on this day than he was on the day that Uzzah died, that God is holy and deserving not just of praise, but of all of our praise. And not only that, that God is gracious in giving us even an opportunity to offer that praise. David's dance is a dance of joy, not just because God has commanded the praise, but because David knows grace. His joy is rooted in grace. You know, there's a lot of songs out there in the Christian worship scene today that, that, that focus on that, that second part of worship. We, we sing some of those. We, sing, we, we sung some this morning. That's good. We should focus on that second part of what God has shown us and the grace that he has given us. And that is a wonderful thing to sing about. And the, there's joy rooted in that. I like those songs. It echoes the dance of David. But David's dancing makes no sense unless you understand what was behind it. He wasn't just dancing because something good had happened and God had blessed him. He was dancing because he knew what he deserved. But instead, he got grace. That's why he was dancing. Not just because of what he received, but because of what he didn't. He had come face to face with his own sin and the sin of his people, his own inadequacies, and God has met him in that place with grace. And I wonder, how about you this morning? Have you felt the weight of your inadequacies? Do you know that kind of grace that made David dance? And has it made you dance? Has it made you sing? Has it made you skip a step? I wonder if maybe today, that maybe the next time you take six steps, would you just stop and consider how gracious it was that you could do that? You, you see, we, we tend to operate in a, in a framework that says God owes me a certain level of, of something. That 
that, that because my heart's in the right place and I try really hard, God's supposed to be nice to me. Or even just in general, that that should be the general disposition of God to me, that as long as my heart isn't intentionally set against him, then he should be intentionally set for me. And he should be uh, clearing my path and making things as easy and as rosy as possible. And we ask questions like, God, why do you make things so hard? Why weren't you here in this place? And we get confused and we get frustrated and we get angry. But all of that confusion, all of that anger, even though it's totally understandable and a part of our faith, it is not rooted in the fact that God has been insufficient towards you or he has been unjust towards you. It's rooted in the ignorance of who God is is and just how marvelous he is. So today, maybe we could reorient our hearts just a bit. We could reorient our hearts just a little bit. Instead of saying the default is, God, why have you allowed these certain things to happen to me? But instead you would say, God, why would you allow me six more steps? Why would you give me the, the grace that you have given me? Why would you spare me from anything that's going on in this world? Perhaps the, the, the cry of why me begins to take a, a turn. And that maybe it begins with the why me, God, why allow this to happen to a why me, God, why bless me at all? And yet the beauty of it is, is that he does. He does. We, we, we get six steps. And then we get six more. And six more. And we breathe. And we celebrate. And we dance. And we sing. And we take it all back to the cross. And goodness, that's so much more than six steps. The Son of God slain to show us grace that David never knew. That he hoped for, that he prayed for in the Psalms. That he knew he needed. But we have the... the the amazing joy to look back on the cross and to say, he did it. Not only do I need it, but he did it. And we know that grace. And that is why our joy is unmatched. Even whenever we're frustrated, heartbroken, confused, lost, when our head is spinning, we just take six more steps. And then we praise. What a gift that is. Will you pray with me? Father, you are a great God, and we are woefully ignorant of how great you are. There is no song, there is no knowledge that we can have this side of being face-to-face -face with you that, that would communicate your greatness to us. 
So Father, we labor over these songs and these words so that you might show us and reveal us a little bit more of who you are. And Father, we thank you just for the six steps. And we thank you for so much more. You are gracious. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.